You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The first substantial storm and atmospheric river of the season is causing widespread problems across southwestern BC. Trees and power lines are down, blocking roads and highways and cutting power to 100,000 BC Hydro customers. Kamal Kuramali is live out in the elements tonight. Kamal, the rain has really been picking up, at least we've heard it here in Burnaby. That's right. The wind has been at it all day, Chris, but it's really in the last couple of hours the wind and, and rain has been pelting people along the south coast. Commuters, though, breathing a major sigh of relief uh, after uh, major backlogs earlier today have now been cleared up. A chilling sound, the constant creaking, rustling, endless swaying of massive trees looming over these Surrey homes. Every time it gets windy, one of those come down. The strong winds already knocking one of them down right into Neil's front yard, missing his home by a few feet. I just heard the crack and came out the driveway inside. Over in Langley, reports of a tree slamming into a power pole. There was this bang, really big bang, and carry on. And uh, so I looked around, I couldn't see anything, and I could see flames and stuff from going from over that way. Has left this entire mobile home park without power. Many of those who live here are seniors. Like Marilyn Olson, who says she'll survive. But many others in this community desperately waiting for hydro crews. They certainly have apparatus that they have to wear a lot of times and things like that. And can't go too far, can barely walk in themselves. BC Hydro says at its peak, nearly 90,000 customers were without power across the province. This morning uh, was northern BC that was hardest hit. And then that changed throughout the afternoon, uh, the lower mainland, uh, Burnaby and Vancouver, as well as uh, the southern islands. So Duncan had a very large outage as well. The fast moving winds also causing traffic on Highway 1 westbound lanes to come to a standstill when a power line came down around 9.30 in the morning in Coquitlam, causing backups all the way to the other side of the Portman Bridge. By late afternoon, the highway reopened and most of those power outages were resolved. But new ones continued to crop up. This one in East Vancouver, traffic light outages caused confusion on the roads, another tree falling on a transformer in South Vancouver. One of the dead trees uh, rolled over and uh, onto the electrical lines and caused a uh, transformer to blow. While crews worked tirelessly to restore power lines in Richmond, hoping the worst is behind them. And strong winds also causing some issues at the ferry terminals. So we saw at least two ferry sailing saw, uh, sea delays between Vancouver and the Sunshine Coast and Vancouver and Nanaimo. But many saying it could have been much worse. And hopefully, as I mentioned, the worst is hopefully behind them. Back over to you. All right, we'll find out in a moment. Kamal, thanks very much. And for more answers, let's check in with senior meteorologist Christy Gordon. Christy, it has been a stormy day on and off. What's coming up next? Well, we're really lucky that we're getting to the back end of the system. So the atmospheric river, the main, more intense part over us in terms of rainfall. But we're going to see that ease off as we continue through the evening hours. Here's a quick look. So this is at around 9 p.m. tonight. Much of Metro Vancouver will likely see that rain ease. Mostly, I'm concerned about the Fraser Valley. Where we'll continue to see heavy rain likely through the overnight period. Although Metro Vancouver will see some rain, but not as heavy. Uh, we are going to see significant snow on the Coquihalla. Avoid the 
Coquihalla overnight tonight. Tomorrow will be a much better day to travel. As this front shifts down and out of the region, we will see a much better day all across the Metro Vancouver region. So tomorrow much brighter, but we still do have just a few more hours of this uh, um, uh, heavy rain to contend with, especially through the Fraser Valley. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that, Christy. After a lot of anticipation, we found out today B.C. will not be backing a bid for the 2030 Winter Olympic Games. The provincial government announcing it cannot justify the cost, leaving the four First Nations leading the charge very disappointed. Aaron MacArthur has more on the decision and the reaction. The Olympic cauldron has been extinguished before it ever had the chance to burn. The provincial government announcing Thursday it could not support an Indigenous-led bid to host the 2030 Winter Games, estimating it would have to spend $1.2 billion in direct cost and assume another billion in liability risk. I just think it's the wrong time. Uh, you know, government has a lot to focus on. It is an extraordinary expense uh, for the people of British Columbia. After more than a year studying the proposal, the B.C. government acted unilaterally Thursday the four host nations were never given an opportunity to sit in a room and work through the challenges. Despite asking for a meeting with incoming Premier David Eby, the Squamish nation was kept at arm's length until the decision was announced. It's like a kick in the teeth because we've been uh, going through hoops in regards to uh, accommodating the requests for our proposal, and uh, it almost felt like it was a predetermined no. The timeline for a bid for 2030 was always tight. In the summer, the city of Vancouver expressed concerns about the feasibility of the project, but voted to proceed anyway. The resort municipality of Whistler issuing a statement expressing disappointment, saying it entered the process in good faith, believing it was a model for reconciliation in action. The opposition accusing the NDP of not fulfilling its commitment to Indigenous people. Instead of embracing an opportunity uh, at reconciliation to turn their backs uh, on uh, First Nations in particular on this uh, is, is uh, frankly irresponsible. Without provincial support, the federal government will decline to participate as well. There's little chance the Games will proceed. The International Olympic Committee requires someone to take on the legal liability. A decision on the host of the 2030 Games is expected next year. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The mayor of Trail is speaking out, calling for better supports in the wake of an alarming incident outside the city's ambulance station. A 29-year-old man from Quebec faces a number of firearms charges after trying to enter the building and allegedly firing at two officers and three paramedics. Mayor Lisa Payson says it's rare to hear of this type of violence in Trail, and the situation is very concerning. She says it is clear more must be done for people in crisis, especially in communities already stretched thin for resources. We really need to look at this broken system because if our two RCMP officers would have gotten injured or shot, that's a considerable hit to our community, to their families, to their friends. And this isn't just trail. It happened in the Lower Mainland last week. So what can we do to, to make that system more robust, to make people more safe? Payson says a long-term strategy is needed or the cycle will only continue. The suspect remains in custody and is due in court next week. And public safety is a hot-button issue on a municipal and a provincial level right now. And it once again became the subject of debate 
in the legislature during question period today. Keith Baldry joins us live with more on this. And Keith, the Liberals pushed the NDP pretty hard on this lately. What's the takeaway for the public after today? Yeah, the issue is just not going away, Chris. There's incident after incident, anecdote after anecdote, providing fodder for the B.C. Liberals on a daily basis. Today, uh, new B.C. Liberal MLA Eleanor Sturkel revealed that there's some guy walking around out there who's had 421 interactions with police and criminal complaints against him, yet he continues to be free out of custody. Also quoting the government's own handpicked expert, Doug Lepard, uh, who told the public forum recently on crime that he's tried to suggest to Crown prosecutors to put uh, prolific offenders behind bars for lengthy periods of time, and he says he's getting pushback on that idea. Here's an exchange in question period today. Lepard even said, and I quote, when we suggested being more assertive and seeking detention for offenders who breach their conditions over and over and over again, I have to say we got pushback on that, end quote. So my question, Mr. Speaker, is when will the NDP scrap the incoming soft-on-crime premier's catch-and-release system and start keeping violent, prolific offenders in jail? This national challenge has to be addressed not just by the provinces in conjunction with municipalities, as we're doing, but also with the federal government. And I'm working hard to work with our federal colleagues in order to see that they come to the table and make reforms they need to make as well. So the government today also announced that it is suspending one week of the fall session. We're getting rid of one week. That's four less question periods. Ostensibly, that's to pave the way for David Eby to be sworn in as premier on November 18th. That date's now been official. It's about 10 days later than we had anticipated. They may also be suspending the session, or at least a week of it, because they're tired of getting hit over the head by this particular issue by the B.C. Liberals on a near daily basis. Taking his time. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Vancouver police are searching for a suspect after a taxi driver was assaulted back in the summer. Investigators are now releasing these pictures of the man in hopes they will lead to tips. The alleged attack happened back on August 14th. Police say the suspect assaulted the taxi driver inside his cab and left him with serious life-altering injuries. The taxi driver picked up the suspect near the busy commercial Broadway Skytrain station. Anyone with information is asked to contact the VPD major crime section. The ISIS bride from B.C. comes home to face her alleged crimes. What happened in court today as she faces the possibility of terrorism charges? That's next on the News Hour. From the stories that touch us all to the events happening all around us, when B.C. needs to connect, B.C. turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Well, it's a place that we have to find a way to protect. The mighty Fraser and why it has been declared BC's most endangered river. That's coming up on the News Hour. And the BC hatchery upgrade that's producing happier trout. That's later as well. Right now, though, the BC wife of an ISIS member is free on bail while Canadian prosecutors consider terrorism related charges against her. Kimberly Pullman is back in Canada after spending three years in a Syrian detention camp. And as Sarah McDonald reports, she'll face some strict conditions while living in Chilliwack. A BC woman who married a member of the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS, is now back on Canadian soil from Syria and out on bail in Chilliwack. Do you pose a risk to British Columbians or Canadians at large? Are you looking forward to being home with your family in Chilliwack? 
Kimberly Pullman left Canada years ago to marry an ISIS fighter, but claims she quickly became disillusioned. Pullman appeared in court in Chilliwack on Thursday, looking notably different from past images, wearing a loose-fitting green sweater and glasses, with no hijab and auburn shoulder-length hair pulled back off her face. Pullman, originally from Abbotsford, was one of two women captured in Syria by Kurdish forces during their fight against ISIS. Both women were arrested in Montreal early Wednesday upon returning to Canada. Both were taken out of a detention camp in northern Syria in a release facilitated by the federal government. Pullman is said to have qualified to be returned to Canada due to an array of supposed medical conditions. She has not been criminally charged yet, but a peace bond is being sought against her. At this point, clearly what she's been arrested on is a peace bond. Uh, peace bond does not uh, create a criminal offence, but is a way of at least dealing with uh, the risk that someone may commit a terrorism offence. Pullman has now been released on bail to live with her sister in Chilliwack on a number of conditions, including electronic monitoring and a strict curfew, a prohibition of accessing any electronic devices or from driving a motorized vehicle and possessing a passport or leaving the province without express permission. She'll also be attending a provincially run program in Surrey that works with people considered vulnerable to radicalization and related violence. Pullman will be back in court December 2nd. Sarah McDonald, Global News, Chilliwack. And just ahead, food banks feeling the pressure. We're actually adding about a thousand people a month currently signing up that have never used a food bank before. Yeah, the shocking jump in demand in just the last three years. Next. And coming up in sports, the Canucks get cracking in a critical game. Still looking for win number one. Still seeing some pretty major delays both ways on Highway 1 in Vancouver after clearing a crash just past the Cassiar Tunnel at First Avenue. The drive into fall event is on now. Take on any tough jobs this season with the powerful new 2022 Chevrolet Silverado 1500. Visit your local Chevrolet dealer today. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A major regional park in Coquitlam is set to partially reopen after a late season wildfire. You remember this one. Fire broke out in the park at the beginning of October, eventually growing to 14 hectares. This week's rain means the fire is now considered out and four trails will reopen Friday at Minicata Park. They include the Lodge, Meadow and Quarry Trails and the Log Walk. The rest of the park will remain off limits while crews remove debris and then develop a park restoration plan. Oliver Road remains open to pedestrians and bikes, but it is still closed to vehicles. Now, some shocking new data which shows a surging number of Canadians are accessing food banks. And it's not expected to get any better in the near future. As Julie Nolan shows us, the numbers are way up in B.C. and it has food banks very concerned. One of two main coolers that we have. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank is trying to keep up with demand. And you can see we're starting to put the orders together for some of the agencies. Donated food for those who need it. A whopping 29% increase in people from Greater Vancouver over last year. We're actually adding about 1,000 people a month currently signing up that have never used a food bank before. That's 14,000 people a month and another 20,000 through the food bank's partners and agencies. A pattern in line with what's happening across Canada, according to the Hunger Count report from Food Banks Canada. Last March, there were 1.5 million visits to food banks in the country. That's the highest usage of food banks on record. What's baffling is that in the same month, there was one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. This year in March, there was a 15% increase over last year's food bank visits, and that's showing a trend. 
This is a 35% increase over the same time three years ago. There's no reason to believe that the food prices are going to come down anytime soon. So this is something that we are bracing ourselves for. Food banks BC's numbers are in line with local numbers. Provincially, the needs are immense, especially in rural areas. It's a very difficult situation out there for folks who are, um, who are facing food insecurity. For those in need in Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, it's a struggle that's being called a perfect storm. The cost of living is going up and up. It's certainly a concern, and it's a concern right across the country um, that something needs to change. Especially heading into Christmas, their busiest time of year, food banks will need to ramp up operations through donations and volunteers. A demand that has no signs of easing off anytime soon. Julie Nolan, Global News. Up next, angry parents protest changes to autism funding. Stop hurting me! For a year now, what they're demanding from Premier-designate David Eby. Also tonight, backlash after convicted murderer Colin Thatcher was invited to Saskatchewan's throne speech ceremony. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. All the major routes are still pretty busy, and the Arthur Lang Bridge is no exception. Lots of congestion both ways, and now dealing with a stall southbound near mid-span. Through a charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Well, RCMP recently released the identities of the two people found dead near Summerland last month. The bodies of Alana Brown and Douglas Barker, both of Penticton, were found near the Penticton Shooting Sports Range. Today, Global's Taya Fast spoke with family and friends of the deceased who are still hoping for justice. Before he died, he said, I love you guys so much. Nevea and Isabel were some of the last to see Douglas Barker, their uncle, alive. He was coming to pick up our dad's clothes so he can use it, and then he was with his girlfriend, Alana, and I haven't seen him since. According to the girl's mom, Brittany Harris, they last saw him and his girlfriend, Alana Brown, on September 11th. So the girl saw blowing up his phone, and he never responded to them, which is not normal. So I called his auntie Kim and I said, hey, I was like, we need to do a missing person because he's missing. I said, something's wrong. On September 15th, the bodies of Doug Barker and Alana Brown were found here on this paved road just outside of the Penticton Shooting Sports Range. It's been really tough since he's been gone. Watching my girls cry every night is really tough to watch. Fire crews responded to reports of a fire in the area and upon arrival, they discovered the two bodies before notifying police. BC's RCMP's Serious Crime Unit continues to investigate both deaths, but the family says they've been kept in the dark and just want answers. Honestly, like, um, his next kin hasn't really had anything. Like, we know nothing about what's going on now. At the beginning, they kept in touch with us a little bit, and then it just, like, they just vanished. RCMP have not shared if there are any suspects and a possible motive at this time is unknown. Global News did reach out to RCMP for more information, but they did not respond to a request for an interview. I just want justice for him. I want to find out what happened and lay him to rest peacefully. 
Alana Brown's family declined an on-camera interview, but in a statement from a friend, says Alana was a kind, loving soul who was trying to find her way in life. She will be missed by so many and didn't deserve what happened to her. Doug brought her over on the 11th. She didn't stay, but she was always smiling, always happy. Meanwhile, Nevaeh and Isabel are remembering Doug as the best uncle in the world. Um, he was, um... Uh, a really, really nice person. He was an outgoing person. Um, he always liked to smile. One of our best uncles ever, who only had mostly had. And it's kind of sad when he passed away. TFAS Global News. Fallout at the Saskatchewan Legislature today after a Saskatchewan Party MLA invited former provincial cabinet minister and convicted killer Colin Thatcher to take part or to take in the throne speech ceremony. Global's Connor O'Donovan has more on reaction. It's hard to say, you know, hard and fast rules around who should be here and who shouldn't be here, but I think we all have enough common sense to know that you don't invite someone who's been convicted of murdering their wife uh, to the throne speech. And apology, sensitivity training, more use of common sense. Those are a few of the suggestions that the opposition NDP has for Scott Moe and the Saskatchewan Party government. After on Wednesday, Saskatchewan Party MLA Lyle Stewart invited convicted murderer Colin Thatcher to participate in throat speech ceremonies here in the legislative chamber. I thought, hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, a very recognizable individual. I did see him when I uh, sat down in the House. But from the Premier Thursday, no direct apology. Me? What would I apologize for? In the early 80s, Thatcher served as Saskatchewan Energy Minister before spending two decades in prison. Mo says the invite is not one he would have made, that it was not a government invitation, and that he regrets the distraction Thatcher's appearance caused from the throne speech itself. Which he says highlights investments aimed at combating crime in the Canadian province with the highest rate of police-reported family violence. As I said, I, I, I would have done things differently personally, um, but... These are, these are guest lists that, that I don't vet. I don't know if the speaker vets them, I, but I most certainly don't, and I, and I won't be. From Lyle Stewart himself, no on-camera availability, no direct apology, and instead a statement Thursday calling the invite a, quote, error in judgment. Status of women critic Jennifer Bowes says despite the province dedicating nearly $25 million to interpersonal violence supports this year, the appearance of Thatcher shows the province doesn't take that issue seriously enough. Advocates in the community have been calling for funding for second stage shelters for women in our province. We're one of only two provinces that does not offer this funding and it would provide long-term stable housing for women and children who are fleeing these situations of domestic violence. Adding to reaction with a statement of their own, the Provincial Association of Transition Houses called Thatcher's appearance disturbing, that it sends a message to survivors that deaths like that of Joanne Wilson are inconsequential, and that they hope Lyle Stewart sees the reaction to the invite as an opportunity for reflection. Connor Donovan, Global News. There is growing pressure on Premier-designate David Eby to scrap the government's plan to change the funding model for autism and other disabilities. As Kylie Stanton reports, parents and caregivers say the government is going ahead with a system almost nobody wants. The NDP is hurting me. If there's a group of parents who know how to put up a fight, it's this one. All tireless advocates for their children with autism. The NDP is hurting me. 
But a dramatic change to the way they will soon have to access support and services has pushed them to their breaking point. I mean, it's a year later and we're going out in an atmospheric river with disabled kids to protest again. Yes, we're at the breaking point. Thursday marks the first anniversary of the BC government's Autism Hub model announcement. By 2025, it will move away from individualized therapy of up to $22,000 a year to new community group hubs. What are they doing? Parents fearing this would mean fewer hours with less trusted providers have tried repeatedly to raise their concerns through rallies, even social media. And now with a change in leadership, there's hope the government will change course. The decision to, uh, to destroy individualized uh, supports uh, for, 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 the, for children with autism was a bad policy a year ago. It's a bad policy today. David Eby was not available for comment. And despite the mounting pressure, the minister responsible isn't backing down. I take the concerns that have been raised with me very seriously and we will continue to review the implementation in the um, areas where services are going to be delivered first and we will learn from those experiences. The government says the hub model will clear a wait list of more than 6,000 children in line for neurodiversity assessments while providing services for children with Down syndrome and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But there is no additional money in the budget. Hey, hey, go, go. Leaving parents less than reassured they'll continue to have the consistency their children thrive on. And so they plan to keep on fighting their fight. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Coming up, 100 years of pulling together at UBC. On a whole new era of rowing in British Columbia. The astonishing success of Thunderbirds rowing and why the best is yet to come with a new crop of athletes. And how to protect what some consider BC's most endangered river. We are at a critical turning point in cancer care and research, but together our potential is beyond belief. The BC Cancer Foundation has launched the most ambitious health campaign in BC's history. Give today at GoBeyondBeliefBC.ca. The Fraser Valley Trout Hatchery is home to a new recirculating aquaculture system. 98.5% of the water used in the new system is recirculated which reduces the hatchery's environmental footprint. The upgraded system reduces the amount of water needed to raise the trout while also improving the quality of the fish. It also has a shorter production cycle, making it more efficient and cheaper to run. The new system, our RAS system, uh, we have our domesticated rainbow trout that we uh, have a captive brood and we can produce uh, a 225 gram rainbow trout in a fairly short time, uh, around five months, uh, and get them out to the urban lakes for uh, urban anglers. The hatchery produces 90,000 catchable-sized rainbow trout a year. 90% of those end up in lower mainland lakes. Well, it's called the heart of the Fraser for good reason. And conservationists say that is more than enough to make sure it stays that way. Paul Johnson has more on BC's most endangered river and the renewed push to protect it better. This is the most important sturgeon spawning habitat in all of Canada. Without question, it's one of the most productive sections of river anywhere on earth. So it's a place that we have to find a way to protect. Take a walk along the banks of the Fraser with river conservationist Mark Angelo. He'll tell you the story of the Fraser is one of great improvement from decades ago. 
but also of new challenges that have compelled his group to declare that for this year, the Fraser is BC's most endangered river. We've been assessing the state of the Fraser River for decades, and in terms of the heart of the Fraser, it faces an array of threats, things like agricultural expansion, urbanization, industrial development. Their specific concern is about a handful of islands like these. This is Strawberry Island, which is in the ecologically sensitive heart of the Fraser region between Mission and Hope. In their natural state, these islands and the gravelly channels that wind through them are habitat for 30 different species of fish, including salmon and sturgeon. But in recent years, some of them have been acquired by private landowners with the intent to develop them for agricultural businesses. The dikes and roads resulting from that come at the expense of dwindling fish habitat. We need a collaborative plan. We need a collaborative conservation strategy. We don't have one yet. Given the overlap of multiple layers of government that oversee development issues here, Angelo says the best case scenario would be for the public sector to get together and simply buy the islands of concern. With the federal government now flush with cash to protect salmon, he says writing a check would be the easy move here. If we can't protect the most important habitat in the entire Fraser watershed, the goal of rebuilding salmon stocks will be really difficult to attain. Paul Johnson, Global News. Richmond RCMP are joining forces with ICBC to raise awareness about pedestrian safety. The pedestrian safety awareness campaign kicked off at the Canada Line Brighouse Station in Richmond this morning. Officers and volunteers handing out reflectors in an effort to improve safety. ICBC is reminding everyone to be extra vigilant with the days getting shorter and darker. Pedestrians need to be aware that drivers don't always see them. So the campaign from ICBC right now is be safe, be seen, wear reflective clothing, use the crosswalks, and drivers, please slow down. As pedestrians, you want to make sure you make eye contact before we cross uh, any road at a marked crossway, making eye contact with that driver to be sure that they see you before you cross the road. Please, if you're a biker or anyone on a scooter, mm -hmm. do the same thing. Need to be able to see you out there. Especially with all the delivery people hitting the roads these That's days. That's right. Uh, all right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon once again uh, with a look at what's to come. Atmospheric River number one and another one on the way in a couple of days, Christy. That's right. That one is on Sunday. So we're heads up on that one. And I'll show you a little bit more on that one in a second. But I wanted to quickly mention we still have 5,000 homes without power, uh, BC Hydro. But there has been some good news. We only have 150 fires burning across the province. So that's been a reduction since when we had the drought of about 50 fires. And all of them are uh, classified as either being held or under control. So that's some good news. And we'll continue to see that trend. Here's a look at the atmospheric river. So why do we call it an atmospheric river? It's because the cold front part is really so long. It's pulling um, a significant amount of moisture from the tropics right onto the BC coast. And this one was classified at about a one or a two because it's continuing to track to the south. We are dealing with the major part of the rainfall right now, and it will continue to track southeast of our region. As we head through the overnight period, you'll see that rain ease off. The winds have already begun to ease, although we're seeing some gusts through the East Fraser Valley, um, sorry, Abbotsford region up to 41 kilometers an hour. I'm 
concerned about the Kogahala, avoid it tonight where it could see snow. It's rain right now, but it could easily transition to snow. And it, tomorrow will be a much better day for traveling on the Kogahala because we are going to see this swing down and away. And we should be enjoying sunshine by the afternoon. So a nice end to what has been somewhat of a stormy week. So we will see some thunderstorms across the north coast region as an upper level low impacts those areas. Some nice blue sky though in through the southern interior. The majority of the rainfall will be just in the morning for you. Uh, I've kept in a chance of showers for our region tomorrow despite us enjoying some sunshine. That chance of showers is more towards the evening hours with a 40% chance uh, through the evening. Saturday showers, Sunday's the wet one with atmospheric river number two expected. That could have a significant impact, a greater impact potentially than one we saw today. Halloween is looking bright though so far. It's still a couple of days off so stay tuned on that one but it is not looking too bad uh, as we head towards our Halloween day. Here's tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Saanich. A beautiful shot of the sunrise. Thank you to Barry Forrester. I like the, the fact you can see a bit of fog there with that red sky. Lots going on in that photo. That's a beauty. Thanks very much, Christy and Barry. All right, love him or hate him, billionaire Elon Musk has officially taken control of Twitter. Musk faced a Friday deadline to close his $44 billion acquisition of the social media giant. And his first move was to fire Twitter's top leadership, including the company's CEO and chief financial officer. The deal brings an end to a months-long saga between Twitter and the world's richest man. Musk recently changed his Twitter profile to read Chief Twit. That's some self-awareness. Indeed. All right, a prestigious international award has been handed out today in the UK to BC's 442 Transport and Rescue Squadron. And the outstanding performance and contribution of 442 Squadron in the preservation of lives which were threatened by this natural disaster is thoroughly deserving of the recognition of Barry Martin Memorial Award. Members of the Comox Space Unit were in London to accept the honour for their efforts to evacuate more than 311 people, 26 dogs and one cat who were stranded in Agassiz by landslides in November of last year. Three helicopters and a transport utility aircraft were used to rescue the motorists in difficult conditions. The Barry Marsden Memorial Award for Heroic Efforts During Natural Disasters is named after one of the founding members of Abbotsford-based Conair, a world leader in aerial firefighting amazing what they were able to accomplish one almost one year ago great work and we're very proud of having 442 squadron here in bc very proud to have squire on our team too he's here with a look ahead to a big game a massive game a huge game well we'll, we'll see i mean you make it sound like it's <laughs> A bit facetious, but actually, you're right. This is a huge game. When you haven't won in your first seven, every game is huge. They could be playing the three of us, and it would be huge. But they're playing Seattle. Thatcher Demko has an idea of how he can help his team win. I can definitely make more saves. So. Yeah, that would help. We haven't seen a great game from Demko yet this season. Oh, Canucks have made a trade, too. I'll tell you about that. All right, look forward to all that. Thanks, Squire. Also tonight, the rowing program that helped put UBC on the map, still going strong a century later. Got some breaking news. Yeah, it just happened a short while ago. Yeah, the Vancouver Canucks have made a trade. I think this one has more impact in Abbotsford right now than Vancouver, but we might see this kid 
with the Canucks. Jack Stanika has been brought in from the Boston Bruins. He's a center. And going to Boston, goaltender Mikey DiPietro, who kind of fell out of favor once Jim Benning was fired. And defenseman Jonathan Mirenberg, who's a decent prospect, who plays in Sweden. Stadnika has mostly played in the American Hockey League, but in 38 NHL games with Boston, he does have one goal. Okay, so at the risk of overhyping this, tonight's game with Seattle and tomorrow's game against Pittsburgh feels like they will have a huge impact on what happens next for a Vancouver Canucks team that has needed only seven games to crush the spirits of a lot of optimistic fans. Can Bruce Boudreau survive this week without some sort of turnaround? Now, a trip to Seattle is not an easy touch for Vancouver. Not just because they're going to be missing guys like Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser, but also because the Kraken are a bit better than they were last season. They've already beaten Colorado and Buffalo. And Bruce Boudreau was not surprised at their improvement. Well, the same thing they did uh, when they beat us in Seattle in, in the preseason. They skate, they work, and uh, they're going to be a difficult opponent. And they didn't like where they ended up last year, and they made some improvements. But they're a really good skating team, and, and uh, uh, they're starting to believe in themselves. Thatcher Demko will be the starting goalie tonight. He made 36 saves against Carolina the other night, but his save percentage is still not close to his usual standard. It's 872 right now. Last season, his save percentage was 915. That's a huge drop-off. But he's not blaming the defensive play in front of him and says his approach has not changed. Um, I mean, the game doesn't really change. So, I don't think you're kind of on on that one. Like, I'm just trying to do the same stuff I'm doing. So, nothing's changing from last year. So, I don't know. I think... Uh, I can definitely make more saves. So. Yes, no Canuck team has ever really started like this. But again, the weird thing is they have had leads in some of these losses. Contrast that to the 84-85 team, which started as Bill LaForge's team. He was the coach briefly, then he got fired. In those first seven games that season, the Canucks lost one of their games to Philadelphia 13-2. Now that's an 80 score. 13-2. Uh, the Abbotsford Canucks play their first home game tomorrow night, 7 o'clock against San Diego. Over 6,000 tickets have already been sold, so that means they're closing in on a sellout. San Diego is Anaheim's farm team. They'll play each other again on Saturday. Now, Abbotsford started this season like the Vancouver Canucks on the road, but unlike the big team, Abbotsford has won some games. They're 2-2 two two right now. Nick Taylor, only BC guy at the Bermuda Championship. The PGA stopped this week. Had a pretty good start today. Five under par, five birdies, although he's still four shots off the lead. There's one of his birdies right there. No bogeys today. All right. Tomorrow night at UBC's War Memorial Gym, it'll be a civil war, a basketball civil war. SFU against UBC's men's team. They're playing for the Buchanan Cup. I just have a feeling this is going to be a very hotly contested competitive game. It's not often the biggest game of the year is played in the preseason, but for SFU and UBC basketball players, the Buchanan Cup is everything. The province's two biggest universities in a court battle that has all of the emotion of a championship game. It's, it's bragging rights, just pride, even all the students here and the students there, it's kind of settles the debate with uh, the U Sports and NCAA, so there's a lot of stake. I mean, if you want to be in big games at the end of the year, you might as well start getting ready right away. So um, I think it makes us play with a lot more urgency and practice, uh, getting ready for a game like this. At this stage in the season, to have a playoff vibe to a game uh, bodes really well. And you want to put your players in a situation where they have to perform 
uh, in, in stressful situations. You know, it's going to be packed, it's going to be loud, there's a lot of alumni, but it's exciting. This is what it's all about. The Buchanan Cup dates back to 1965, the first year of SFU's existence. Simon Fraser won the first game, but in 35 all-time matchups in this series, it split down the middle, 17 wins apiece with one tie. And for players like UBC's Jack Cruz Dumont, this series has family ties. His brother Hunter actually plays for SFU, and their parents played basketball with the Thunderbirds. My, uh, my dad's part of the game back in the day. My, uh, my mom also played at UBC, so she's going to be here. And he's got a lot of ex-teammates that are going to be here, so, you know, I'm, I'm excited. There are other interesting side notes to this game. UBC coach Kevin Hansen shares the same last name as SFU coach Steve Hansen, although they're not related. But SFU athletic director Teresa Hansen is related to Kevin. She's his wife. Well, at least one of them will be happy after Friday night. But it's a game both sides feel can grow even more, a tradition that needs to be celebrated and expanded. We showed the guys the trophy. We talked a little bit about the history. It's good for them to know the, you know, the guys that played in the 66-67 game. And uh, yeah, it's just a great rivalry. I think it's something that I think we can really build this game to be something much bigger. I went to I went to school with him. Okay. I know he. Would I might have had a tiny bit of a crush on him. Okay. Like, you know, in grade six. All right. <laughs> it's a long, long time ago. Thanks a lot, Squire. All right. Up next, a success story 100 years in the making. How UBC's rowing team is still going strong. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. Jordan Armstrong standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Sophie, the detachment commander of Trail RCMP is speaking out tonight after first responders were shot at but not hurt Tuesday. Hear what he has to say about big city criminals showing up in smaller communities such as his. Plus tonight we'll find out which Vancouver restaurants will receive stars from the prestigious Michelin Guide. A ceremony is taking place at the convention centre and will bring you the winners at 11. And win or lose, Asa Raymond will have Canucks post-game reaction tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. Okay. It's got to be a win. I, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Kind of looking forward to that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> got to be. All right, speaking of winning, the UBC Rowing Club is one of the most storied programs in Canadian university sport, and it's celebrating a big milestone in its history. This year, it marks a century of being a powerhouse on the water and a training ground for dozens of Olympians. Jada Rant shows us more on This is BC. The UBC rowing team is getting ready to take a shot at some more national titles and continue a century of excellence that has made it one of the most successful sports programs in Canadian university history. It's really inspiring as an athlete to see what people before you have done. Launching in 1922, UBC rowers have gone on to win 40 Olympic medals. Ned Pratt was the first in 1932. The Second World War halted competition, but was followed by a dominating period that spanned a decade. Under the eyes of Coach Frank Reed, it thrilled, thrilled, thrilled. Out of nowhere, Coach Frank Reed built a powerhouse team that would shock the world with upset wins at the most prestigious regattas. On a whole new era of rowing in British Columbia and in Canada. Frank had a reputation of being tough and hard and all the rest of it. But the big thing about Frank was that he saw his vision was very high. 
At the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, UBC rowers won gold and silver medals on the same day. This is Canada's first Olympic gold medal ever for rowing. Suddenly in 56, you see all these letters coming in from Europe and Australia and around North America asking like, what's your secret? Like, well, how'd, you, how'd you do this? The success continued into the 60s. And in 1976, women's rowing made its varsity debut, inspiring a new generation of athletes including the late Kathleen Heddle, who won three Olympic gold medals. One of the most accomplished competitors in Canadian rowing history. The boats at the UBC facility are named after the legends that helped build the program. Thunderbirds rowing remains one of the most dominant teams in the country as it continues to build its reputation on the global stage. Yeah, we're really trying to expand our, our footprint internationally and see how we can compare against some of the top schools in the States and in Europe as well. Got great support from our alumni group, great support from the university. Um, so we're, yeah, we're just running with it, see how far we can go. Jay Durant, Global News. So impressive, well done. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell and you wanna share it with the rest of us, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Keep those ideas coming. Great footage mm -hmm. too, old footage. All right, uh, Christy Gordon, sorry. Was just a little bit of a, a, a pain thinking about the weather now because <laughs> we got more of it coming up, Christy. Yeah, but not until Sunday, and we've got a nice break in store for us tomorrow. We still do have a chance of showers tomorrow. We're not totally in the clear. Bring a rain jacket just in case kind of day, but it's certainly compared to what we're dealing with tonight, it should ease off overnight. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.